Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. As I record this, I have um, been spending some time at the beach, and I actually go to a beach uh, where there are a lot of surfers. Um, a lot of surfers there. I am not one of them, although I'm kind of toying with the idea to, of, of getting my creaky body up on a board. And I've been thinking a lot about the our, our guest this week because Jaimal Yogis is uh, he writes about the intersection of Buddhism and surfing. He he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Saltwater Buddha, and he has a new one called All Our Waves Are Water. And I get it, even though I've never surfed, um, I can see from my uh, limited standpoint how the two would intersect in a really fascinating and uh, satisfying way, and. I always, I mean, even though I've been going to this beach for um, more than a decade, I uh, and I always assumed I would never do anything except watch the surfers and maybe watch someday my now two-year-old learn how to surf. I'm actually, after this conversation, starting to think more about doing it myself. And maybe you will too. Here he is, Jaimal Yogis. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks. Really enjoyed reading your book. And for those who haven't looked at any of your work, can you give me some backstory of how you came to practice? Yeah, I was a little bit born into the meditation cult. Um, <laughs> my dad was Catholic, my mom Jewish. They both kind of, in the 70s, were exploring new ideas and ended up with yoga and meditation. You, by the way, go out of your way to point out early in the book that your name sounds like you might be of Eastern descent, but you are not. I'm not. So Yogis is Lithuanian. Uh, my parents named me after Baba Jamal Singh, who was a teacher in the lineage of yoga they were studying in the 70s. My dad wanted to call me Baba Jamal. My mom thankfully convinced him to drop the Baba. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, meditation was around the house and uh, we had everything, you know, from Freud to, you know, the Bhagavad Gita. And and we would kind of pretend to to meditate with them when we were little, and then I totally forgot about it and was just into being a kid. And and then uh, in high school, I ran away from home. <laughs> so I was... How old were you when you ran away from home? I was 16. Wow. Really ran away? I really home? ran away. So Like on milk carton type of thing? Like a one-way ticket to Maui. That's what I did. And did your parents know you were going or did or know where you went or were you left, like a truly missing child? I, I br Briefly, I was a missing child. I was a one-way ticket. I left a note saying, I'm, I'm somewhere in the world and I'll call you when I get there. And I wasn't an unhappy kid. I was getting into some trouble. Like, you know, I'd gotten a DUI and I wasn't the bad kid. I was just the one who always got caught. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and anyway, I felt like I was spiraling. It, it was little bit melodramatic to say that I was but you know I, it could have gone we were experimenting with drugs and stuff it could have gone uh, a, a bad way and where were you where did you grow up I was in Sacramento okay. we'd moved around a lot my dad was in the military anyway I, f I had these we lived on an island in the Azores when I was little um, my dad was stationed there I'd gotten the ocean bug and I was having in the midst of this turmoil in high school uh, I was having these dreams about islands, and I thought, that's where I'm going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go learn to surf in a Maui. I bought a one-way ticket. I went there. Long story short, it only lasted a few weeks that I was alone. My dad came over, convinced me to come home, finish, 
and, and that I could run away legally. And they sent me abroad to France my senior year of high school. But while I was in Hawaii for the first time thinking Hawaii was going to solve my problems and surfing was going to be, you know, the remedy, it was really hard. I was by myself alone with no money. And I think, you know, you have to come full frontal uh, with suffering to really want to do something like meditation. And I think because I'd been exposed to it as a kid, I, I thought, well, maybe I should try it. And I, I picked up a little Thich Nhat Hanh book. And, uh, we should say who he is, a Vietnamese Zen master. Yeah, Vietnamese Zen master who writes in a very simple way and just teaches things like, you know, uh, mindfulness of breathing. So I tried it on the beach and felt really bad at it, but I was also learning to surf and getting beaten down by the waves, and I instantly made the connection with, you know, hey, these these waves of thought that are kind of coming through are a lot like waves in the ocean, and when you're getting held down by a wave in the ocean, you if you struggle against it, it's a lot worse, and so... Uh, that was kind of my intro to Zen was like surfing and Zen. And that's why I, and I, and I, I continue to, to explore that metaphor, but, um, but yeah, that's how it all began. And then I got really into it and went and lived in a Zen monastery for a year and thought I was going to be a monk. And then I was kind of back and forth between the world and not being a monk and trying to figure it out and went to college and, uh, you know, now here I am, uh, talking to you <laughs> <laughs> so you went to the monastery before college so yeah i um so went to france my senior year of high school where that guy Thich Nhat Hanh, the vietnamese zen master lives plum village plum I think? village yeah. yeah so i was i was in france having an adventure but i was getting more into buddhism and i think being in a different culture completely and it, it plays with your identity because everybody knows who you are in your high school in America. And then you go to a different place where you don't speak the language. And it's like, uh, so that was perfect place to study Buddhism because I was having all these questions about identity and went to Plum Village on spring break, called my mom. And I was like, I'm going to be a monk here. This place is perfect. It's what I want to do. And she's like, Jamal, you got to like finish high school, buddy. (laughs) Don't just stay at the monastery. We've been through this. Uh, but I planted a seed, and and I went uh, when I got home to California. I found a Buddhist monastery that also was a, a Zen, Chinese Zen Chan, and I lived there for a year, um, planning to ordain, but um, and doing the monk schedule. Uh, but it was the, a tradition that's very serious. So when you ordain, you ordain for life. And my abbot said, hey, you know, try college first. And then you can always give up all your possessions. There's no hurry. You know, try college. And if you still want to do it, um, and I did. And I went out and, I, you know, I fell in love and got my heart broken and uh, thought this is really hard out here in the world, but there's also things I want to explore and learn. And, and I never went back to uh, the monastery, but I continued to practice in that tradition. But you definitely live a life very much in the world. I do. I mean, I'm a, I have been uh, doing a journalism career. You know, I went to Columbia here in the city and um, went into magazine writing, and then that led to doing books, and now I kind of am a, a mutt doing journalism, doing these books that are somewhat... Uh, about uh, that are memoirs and also teaching some meditation um so i'm you know i'm living this sort of 
Uh, and you have kids and a wife. And I have three kids under six and a wife. So, <laughs> <laughs> so my, I, th- I think the books. The reason I write these books is because I'm, I'm, you know, you have these experiences in the monastery where everything's contained. Everything's like this is set up for meditation. You have your meals taken care of. Even if you're going to do some work, you're sweeping the floor. It's like meditative work. And so you are able to, as you know from retreat, have some different states of mind that you can't encounter as easily in the hustle and bustle. And so kind of that happens in the monastery and you are open to this new world of the mind. But then you decide to live in the world and, you know, all the, all the, all the great masters say, hey, it's everywhere. You know, this awareness that you can find in the temple, it's, you know, it's in the diner too. And um, so I think that's been my mission is, is just to, to be able to, to use the challenges of the world to, to broaden my practice. And it's hard, <laughs> as you know, and as you've written about so well. I love your book. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, I think the narrative, uh, you know, writing about that integration, it helps me to integrate. Well, I want to ask you about the integration on a number of levels. You write a ton about surfing, obviously. Um, from, from a vi- very basic standpoint, and I'm sure there's a ton to say about this, but what is the top line on the connection between meditation and surfing? I mean, yeah, I've written a lot about it, so there's many levels you can ap- uh, approach it. But, you know, at the at the basic level, I think there's the fact that we are – we feel like separate entities, you know, it's like you're over there and I'm over here. But there is some uh, connection between us, some sort of all this reality that we're operating in is united in some way, like waves are to ocean. And that's been something that great meditation teachers and yogis and saints of all philosophers have come back to that, like, we are... uh, more like waves on the ocean than we are sort of like individual rocks (laughs) out there. And that when our sort of self-obsessive stories stop that keep us contained in feeling separated, we can feel more of sort of our oceanic selves, our oceanic nature. And um, it sounds, uh, you know, abstract, but that basic metaphor, which is sort of the foundation for what these non-duality schools are about, like Zen and Advaita Vedanta are these meditation schools that are called non-dual schools. And they're basically saying, hey, on the ground, the basic Legos of existence, like there's something same there. And so even though there's a lot of differences in the relative world, there's some fundamental connection. And I like that metaphor a lot. I also like to surf. And that's why the book is called All Our Waves Are Water, because I wanted to get at that from many different perspectives, and, and surfing helps me do that um, because you're immersed in that metaphor. I mean, you're, you're right there. And again, it sounds like high philosophy, but it's, it's, it's important um, and useful in very mundane ways, too, because when you encounter something like sadness or fear and you want to push it away, and that's what we're trained to do and what we go through our lives habitually doing— if you see it as just a wave that is also water, like the fundamental nature of it is water, then it doesn't have to uh, take on this sort of, uh, you don't need to take on the aversion 
like to that. You can just say, okay, well here I am. I'm in the I'm in the wave. It's passing. It's another it's another uh, it's another part of the sea. And I've found that with emotions, and that's what we're you know we're dealing with in this uh, life. Uh, if I can embrace them and feel them, it's a lot better than you know fighting against them and being held down by them. And but, but just walk me through the exactly how it works. But like when you're surfing, because you said a lot there, talking about perceiving the fundamental connection between all of us. You also talked about the transient nature of emotions. <laughs> yeah. So those two. So what's the connection between those two? And then how exactly does surfing help you? understand those two big ideas and put them to practice in a mundane way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm getting out there. I'm getting into the big stuff before the... the no, I like the big stuff. Sort of the basics. Yeah, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Nothing. No no harm. Um, so, two things. I mean, one, when you go surfing, uh, you can't bring your cell phone. <laughs> and, and so you're you're... The water, in a sense, is a contemplative space because you go out there and um, there's a certain amount of solitude that's just built into the experience because it's it's you in the ocean. The ocean's very dynamic, and so it brings you into the present. And you know, you look at someone in an fMRI when they're surfing and they have a pretty like spherical thinking. They're not as caught up in the. They can put somebody in an fMRI while surfing. Well, they've done so, they've done stuff like that at, at, at more at more like in the water. Gotcha. Um, so and and they sort of you can you can extend that to the surf. There's a more spherical thinking. You're not as as caught in the sort of planning mind um, because you have to be be a little more present. So it's a meditative space, just like going to sit in a, in, a, in the meditation room. But I think because I like these metaphors of thoughts coming through like waves, emotions coming through like waves. Also, the self or the sort of constructed self being also like a wave on the sea, you know, so I'm using two, those are the two main metaphors I'm using. And then being out there, it's like I'm connected to those, to that teaching, and I also am just loving being out in the ocean. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, so there's a lot going on there. So there's there's many levels, and I, I you know, I, I, I'm not thinking about these things every time I go out surfing, but, you know, I think they it sinks in on an unconscious level as well. Yeah, get pounded into your neurons and, yeah. and without a, in an unconscious way, no, no question about it. And for sure, the fact, actually, when you say I'm not thinking about these things, there's something key in there, and that you're maybe doing less thinking overall because you're dealing with what's being thrown at you right now. Yeah, I mean, in the water. less thinking in the story sense and the, you know, planning and past sense. And I think more thinking, and there's still a lot of brain stimulation, I think, out there, but it's like more of the relaxed brain stimulation. And interestingly, the psychologists, when, when uh, they've studied why people love to, to look at water and, you know, why be in the water, why it's rejuvenating to us, and they, they find that it is a lot of stimulation for the brain to look at water, but it's not... They call it soft focus. So you can like stare at the waves for hours and kind of be entertained, but without a lot of uh, the usual prefrontal cortex, like planning, obsessing kind of mind. Comparing. Yeah, comparing all that stuff. So, Yeah, I I get it. I'm going to the beach on Sunday for a week, and I I plan to do a lot of staring at the waves, Um, not surfing, although we go to a great surf beach. I just i am a little too old. 
But I have a two-year-old, and I, I, I suspect he's going to want to get into it, which I would really like to watch. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, but you can, I think, you know, surfing's just one way to engage with the water, and that's for what sure. it's really about for me. I was thinking as you were talking that I'll probably go out and just kind of loll around uh, for a while in the water every day, and there is, your, your, your brain slash mind switches into something else, and I, I can't, I think you put your finger on it better than I'm able to, but there is something pretty magical about that. Yeah, I mean, water is is super rejuvenating, and we're just scratching the surface. I mean, I have, I've been, uh, been deep in my friend Wallace J. Nichols' work, who wrote all about the neuroscience of water. And I mean, there's so many there's so many levels, uh, but of why we feel good in the water. But but one is that you know we're water ourselves. You know, brain is about eighty percent water. Our blood is. The, basically the 98% genetically identical to seawater, the, wa- the amniotic fluid that we bathe in when we're in the, the, the womb is very, very close to seawater. And so when we go in, there's something happening with like a, a kind of return to our origin sort of place. And, and uh, so, yeah, you know, when you're floating out there, uh, it, can, it can feel, I think you can get back into maybe some of those primal pre uh identity pre-story kind of places i look at it as like a shortcut to to some of um you know when you can go on meditation retreat and you really need a lot of time to kind of get into a new space (laughs) and even though you know 20 minutes can also help too but for me with with uh i use both but uh the water it's like i can jump in for five minutes and i get out and i'm i'm a i'm a i'm renewed in some sense so i like to combine them yeah no you're getting me thinking i need to be in the water more often i've definitely thought a lot about how i need to be in nature more often but water specifically definitely it does it for me i mean everything everybody's different um yeah how much time do you get to go surfing though because you got as you said three kids under six well, a lot going on professionally. How often are you able to do this? You know, we live across the street from the beach. <laughs> which in, is, in San Francisco. In San Francisco. Um, are there good waves and there? And there are really good waves there. Um, hopefully there are no surfers listening, so I don't get beat up for saying that. Um, Why? Because they don't want their secret <laughs> exposed? <laughs> yeah. If the surfers are very protective over their, their space. Got it. Right. Um, you don't is, want too much traffic. Yeah, exactly. You know, hey, that's your your that's your time. But yeah, I, so now I'm more on these surgical strike missions where, you know, I drop the kids off at school, I go do my writing, it's like I'm, you know, I find myself uh, losing the creative juices and then I hop out across the street and, you know, go for a surf. And, uh, you know, I'm able to do it um, four or five times a week. That's pretty good. Um, pretty good for a dad of three. And, um, you know, I, I find myself being worse at it <laughs> than I used to be. But the cool thing about being a dad is that, you know, you're never going to be cool again. So you just let go of that and just have fun. And it's just about being in the water for me. And, and I think I've opened up even more into just the state of play, which actually going back to your original question about what's the, the connection between mindfulness and surfing, I think play is probably the most simple way. to When, when you're playing, when you see your your two-year-old son, it's like they're they're in the moment, you know, they're not. They're they're in a what the scientists call flow. I mean, they're flowing, and 
And we as adults forget to play. I mean, it's like everything, including our mindfulness practice, including our exercise, including our relaxation is like scheduled mm. time. You're so right about that. It's like. I feel it in my practice. Yeah. It's like I gotta, I've, I've got my goal for the day. I've got to get this in. And there's a rigidity, a sort of militaristic, grim death march aspect to it that can seep <laughs> in if you forget the play aspect. I think so, yeah. And so, and, and the cool thing about the ocean and surfing is that you know, no matter how, how old you get, you kind of get out there and, and you catch that wave, and you're like, "Hey, this is fun. I'm having fun out here." And you don't have to try to make it fun. Mm-hmm. And then you're present in a new way. And I think, oh, you know, I got to bring that, this back to the meditation cushion because it's not about getting somewhere, like getting that 20 minutes in and just you know bearing down on it and and getting a better better mind. It's about just being, and and uh, and the play state is a natural way to get there, you know, and it's one that I think we forget too much as we grow up. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. More 10% happier on the way, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of today's episode, Blue Apron. Incredible ingredients make incredible meals. That's why Blue Apron partners with a community of over 150 artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and responsible ranchers across the United States. Thanks to these partnerships, Blue Apron is able to deliver fresh, seasonal, perfectly portioned ingredients with easy-to-follow recipes right to your door for under $10 per meal. Log in each week to select the recipes you want to cook or let Blue Apron choose based on your food preferences. With Blue Apron, there's no weekly commitment, so you get the deliveries when you want them. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. When you cook with Blue Apron, you bring the best ingredients to your table while developing a sustainable food system for future generations. Join the growing community of Blue Apron home chefs today and get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping at blueapron.com slash meditate. That's blueapron.com slash meditate. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. 
What kind of meditation do you teach and practice personally? I mean, I, I it depends on the the teaching, depends on the group. I mean, often I'm just doing sort of a, a basic mindfulness, you know, following the breath and sensations, kind of a pasana style uh, mindfulness. And I do that a lot on my own, but I have trained, I'm a little bit of a mutt in that I've trained in Tibetan and Zen and Vipassana. And so depending on kind of, you know, what I'm, what I'm up to, sometimes I do a mantra and some visualizations. Sometimes I just do uh, basic mindfulness of breathing. And then other times I'll be doing like a compassion uh, meditation, um, you know, thinking about suffering and wishing those suffering beings well. And they all have different qualities and they're kind of like, you know, it's like you got, you don't always want to go for a sprint. Sometimes you want to lift weights or, you know, different tools for the mind. And um, I think it's a really interesting point. Uh, I was talking to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, the other day. Um, it is often pointed out um, from listeners that I've never actually had Joseph on the podcast, which is weird. Uh, he was actually supposed to come on a few weeks ago, and I had to cancel it because of, of uh, I was trying to finish my next book, and it was it was just the timing wasn't going to work out. Anyway, Joseph will eventually be on this podcast, but he did say something interesting to me the other day. We were talking about we have these like every month or two. We get on the phone for an hour and talk about my practice, and we were talking about the the notion of meditative cross training. You know, the, the importance of – he's very ecumenical. He, we, lots of types of practice mm-hmm. in a practice. Not too many because it can get cluttered and confusing, but just mm-hmm. a, a nice diversity. And he said, do you think Steph Curry just trains by doing layups? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great point. And, I mean, you you do these practices for a little while. And, I mean, I think in the beginning it's just all like – sitting there and getting out of your usual routine and being like, hey, my knee hurts a lot and, you know, how much longer is there in this sit, no matter what you're doing. But, you know, eventually you realize these things have, I mean, pretty quickly you realize that these these meditations have different qualities of of mind, just like, yeah, um, you know, shooting three-pointers versus doing doing layups. And, and, you know, I've always liked that... uh, bodhisattva teaching a bodhisattva being the sort of uh, ideal of a compassionate being on the buddhist path that they're learning all of it they're learning all the tools because because all of us have a different kind of suffering and though enlightenment is supposedly the simplest thing imaginable it's like our diseases of of mind and story are complex and um, so a bodhisattva is someone who's going to learn all those tools and so when they meet different people, they'll be able to say, hey, you know, you're, uh, you know, you've got a lot of uh, uh, insecurity or anxiety, you know, here, this might, this practice might help you. And you've got like, just ambition is sort of running you into the ground and this practice might work for you. And so, you know, I think we're all very complex beings too, who have all those different sides of ourselves. So I think learning different practices to apply to different scenarios and different places that, you know, phases of life we are in is useful. But thank goodness that there's also just the basic mindfulness of breathing to come back to because it can quickly spin into like, well, what practice am I going to do today? Like, you know, where am I at? And I think I always just the mindfulness, the breath is always there and it's always an anchor. You come back to that. And then 
after doing that for a while, sometimes naturally I'll want to do some, some compassion practice or something. What do you do? I'm curious, like, uh, these days. Uh, I'd say my mix is, it depends on, <laughs> it's always like a little of like when every time I sit down, I'm like, okay, what am I doing now? Uh, not, I usually not in a doubt filled, anxious way, but it really depends on where and how much time I have. Yeah. So, um, I will do short, super short, you know, five, 10 minute sits, depending if I've just got that kind of window of time where I'll do on an ideal day, I'll get up in the morning, play with my son a little bit go do a big workout and then sit for like an hour, hour and 15, hour and a half. That that ideal day doesn't come along too often. Yeah. But if I'm going to if I've got a big sit like that, which took me a long time to work up to, I'll start with a really slow series of body scans. Mm-hmm. Um you know, top of the head, feel that deliberately kind of softening forehead between the eyes, eyes, uh jaw and cheeks, mouth, uh lips Throat, back of the neck, shoulders, chest, stomach, small of the back, tushy, as I would call it with my son, hands connected, knees, feet, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'll do that like three times maybe, and that could take like 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. It's slow enough. And then I'll sit under my nose, like right where the the top of the lip meets the base of the nose, just feeling the breath coming in going out. That's a really hard sensation to isolate. It actually kind of really focuses. You, you have to focus. And I find that that can – I've had a big problem with concentration, um, which is totally common. Uh, my mind is very busy, and, and most people's minds are busy, so this is not unusual. Um, but this has really helped me get more concentrated over the time, that to take this volume of time and really dedicate it to these practices that are very concentration-oriented. And I find that on some days actually produces very pleasant feelings. Not dissimilar to when I used to do drugs, frankly, mm-hmm. but less synthetic and jagged and unhealthy. Less crash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, less horrible on every level and actually quite positive. Uh, but uh, but you, if you read in the literature, uh, in some ways can higher levels of this concentration that I'm describing can be in some cases actually addictive in, in and of themselves. Um, so then I'll do that for a while. And then what I'll do toward the end, once I'm nice and concentrated and I'm, I'm comfortable – and by the way, I sit in a comfortable chair for this. Mm. I don't sit cross-legged. I don't. Have, I have terrible posture, which I'm actually starting to work on now. Um, but I sit in a comfy chair, and then I would say, for, again, this is an ideal sit. Uh, toward the end of it, I'll open up and do open awareness, just sort of noting whatever arises in my consciousness: mm-hmm. anger, sadness, planning, tingle, itch, pressure, hearing, whatever. Just noting everything that comes up. And then toward the end of that, I'll do one final move, which is to look for what is knowing. Mm-hmm. So what is hearing? What is seeing? Well, I'm not seeing much, but maybe I'm seeing things behind my eyes or I've got a mental image that's constructed. So, yeah, seeing, hearing, feeling. What, who is that? Who, where's the Dan that, the, that I'm walking around mm-hmm. um, uh, embodying most of the time? Um, and the interesting thing about that is there's nothing to find. And this, the, the, the continually trying to find it there's something there it's actually the same thing you were describing earlier just another way of getting at the idea of seeing through surfing that we are a wave we feel like wave most of the time but a wave is inextricable from ocean and so there is some it's hard to describe but it's there is some insolidity of self that you can see in there um 
So anyway, that's that would be one sit. Another thing I would do is just if I I I'd meditate a lot in the back of taxi cabs. So I'll uh, you know I'll go to a meeting after this, and so I'll have like twenty five minute ride, and I'll just do kind of an open awareness of hearing whatever hearing feeling moving, um, and then occasionally I'll I'll just throw in that move of like who is who's taking all this in who's who's here to take delivery of these packages, um, and that's kind of just an interesting. And it, it took a while for that to start to work for me. And by work, I put that in quotes. I don't even really know what that means. But you can get a little hit of something. Um, and then sometimes, actually, you get into frustration that you're not feeling the thing that you like to kind of feel when you're looking for this thing. And and then you can just kind of notice the doubt or disappointment or desire that's there. Uh, that's kind of So that that would be a general description of my practice. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That 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 overlaps a lot with what I do. I often start with a body scan you know, head to toes and and then kind of go into just breathing. And, uh, yeah, and, and riffing off what you were saying about the drugs, I mean, there's a lot of dopamine and stuff that gets released from just being present. And it's interesting. I mean, yeah, from turning off the, the, the inner news crawl. Yeah, it's interesting that that's pleasant, you know, that the body <laughs> and mind secrete like a pleasure hormone from – like just shutting up, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, thank you. Um, you know, you, a similar neurochemical to like eating an ice cream and, and, and we should be clear it, that it's not like you're totally shutting up. I don't want to make it like I've right. suspended all thought. There's a ton of thinking going on. It's just that over time, I'm actually getting much better at, and this, I, I would credit uh, another teacher who's this guy who I'm writing my next book with, uh, this guy Jeff Warren, who's been on this podcast before, really helped me loosen up about the fact that you're going to get stuck in thinking all the time. And he actually had me do this thing where uh, you start to notice various inner neurotic programs that recur. Mm-hmm. And he actually had me name them. So with anger, I named after my grandfather, who was a really angry dude. And it's a little goofy. But actually, over time, it creates this kind of inner congeniality, liberality about the fact that you are going to wander. So there's no point struggling against it. It's just like, all right, welcome to the party. Back to the breath. Yeah. I, I My favorite surfing quote is from this guy, Suzuki Roshi, you know, founded uh, Tassahara and a bunch of other Zen centers, uh, that, you know, waves are the practice of ocean thoughts of the practice of mind. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here he is in a Zen and all this, all the, all the Buddhist jokes like, Hey, there's, you know, there's nothing on TV. Let's watch that. Or like, you know, or like, uh, um, they all refer to like blank mind and it, it's misleading that, you know, you're going for that because it, I look at meditation now as like widening the bowl so that, all of the waves are okay. It's like being okay with the yeah. waves, um, being okay with the thoughts, and being okay being a thinker. It's just the difference is that you're not identifying so closely with the thoughts. It's like, you know, there's going to be jealousy. There's going to be anger. Even, you know, I love in your book, you talk about, you interview the Dalai Lama, and it's like, he, Dalai Lama gets angry? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you know, he's, these thoughts are... And emotions are just a, a part of being alive. And just like we have storms in in on the earth and nice days on the earth, and, and so, but you don't have to identify with them. It was the, is the the in this way where, uh, and I like your 
just naming and noticing because it's like if you don't name it and say, oh, you know, jealousy, interesting, there it is again, then it's you're just in the jealousy. (laughs) And you're like, gosh, I'm such a jealous person and, uh, you know, why am I in this cycle? And, like, as soon as you name it, it doesn't always loosen, but at least you have just even, you know, 10% more distance from it. Well, and I was thinking, thinking, sitting here talking to you, that there are so many ways to get at this unhooking from emotion, right? Uh, So this morning, I woke up kind of, brooding over some professional disappointments. And uh, my son and I were playing what we call hall ball, which is what it sounds like. We go into the hallway and kick the ball around. We have some very understanding neighbors. And um, I was lost the whole time. He was flowing, as you said before, and he was looking at Dory, these like ridiculous like little short pant um, pajamas on, you know, like they didn't go all the way down to his ankles and um, and really just into it. But I was gone, just gone. Little moments of just noticing how cute he was or into it, and uh, but mostly just gone, off. And eight years of meditation just didn't matter. Uh, you know, I think it mattered a little bit. I was able to wake up a little bit from the little storm. But interestingly, sitting here with you talking about all this stuff, now I'm actually just – I've unhooked from it a little bit. I can see it more as a wave rather than just being stuck in it. And so I just think that points to something interesting about – so you can't just look to the seated meditation practice to be the panacea, the thing that unhooks you from whatever unpleasant or even pleasant uh, emotion in which you are just lost. Also, having human connection with other people who are practitioners is a big part of, uh, of the practice. And by the practice, I mean in the, in the largest sense. In fact, there's a quote from the Buddha himself who said to his henchman, Ananda, who had just come back from an invigorating discussion with some fellow practitioners, you know, like he said to the Buddha, it's like, that was great dis- discussion. It's like having good friends like that is a half, half the path. And he said, no, 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 it's the whole thing. And so I just, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but it just powerfully impressed upon me just by the simple act of sitting here talking to you and this is what I think would be useful to a lot of listeners that hanging out with other people who take this pursuit seriously is another way of practicing and reducing your own suffering. Absolutely. I mean, I think what we're doing now is another form of of meditation, a reflection on the the mind pointing out being aware of our own minds and, and you can do it in dialogue and um, I love that quote, uh, the 100% of the path quote. And it's really helpful to know that other people are going through the same thing and that we're kind of all saddled with this biology that when you get gripped and hooked by an emotion, it doesn't just go away. You can't just snap your fingers and be like, oh, I'm done. I'm not disappointed anymore because, you know, I started meditating. And realizing that, I think, is is cathartic. There's a basic connection there that says like, hey, you know, He's not perfect. I'm not perfect either. Like that's that's liberating. But then, yeah, there's something also that happens in the talking about it that I think is how therapy works too. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I mean, with like disappointment and, and trauma of any kind, often when we go, when we have it, it's like it connects back to other memories of those other disappointments and like, and then that, becomes like a self 
story about like, oh, I failed again. And <laughs> you know, I'm always a failure. I've yeah. always been a failure. I'm gonna continue failing. That's me. And uh, and what I w- w- kind of cool neuroscience thing is they've they've realized that when you remember one of those old dramas, you actually like contact that same real estate in the brain <laughs> every single time. And it's restructured, so the memory changes. And if you're changing it with the, oh, yeah, I'm always a failure, then it's kind of like that compounds. But when you're talking about it, like you just did, like, hey, I had this hard morning, and we're kind of having a good time here, like pretty relaxed in your studio, and you just contacted that memory again, and you restructured it with the sort of joviality of, of, you know, a good conversation. And... Um, it, it, it's cool to me to know that just talking about it, laughing about it, like being at the beach and reflecting on it instead of being, you know, in a, a whatever, a stressful situation. It's like you're changing that memory. You're healing it a little bit. We have successfully and perhaps annoyingly to you made it Almost forty minutes without talking about your book. Uh, um, so let, let's talk about your book before in the in the remaining moments here, uh, because it's really engaging uh, yarn. And the 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 character who sticks out the most to me, other than you, is this fr- unlikely friendship that you strike up with a young Tibetan monk in Dharamsala, India, when you were a young dude who just had his heart broken by a girlfriend, and and were you were there just kind of bumming around. Just tell me a little bit about him, about that friendship, about what he's doing now, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, his name is Sonam, and I think he still lives in New York, and I actually use the book as I'm looking for him. Uh, um, the book explain- He lives in New York? He does now, I think. And I'm actually so – this is a shout-out that if anyone knows Sonam Wangdu, he was living in Queens. I'm looking for him. Anyway, <laughs> I did meet him, as you say, when I was heartbroken – uh, been planning a trip to India for three years with my then girlfriend, first love, who is Indian American, and uh, we're gonna go live there for a year. Month before the trip, she finds another dude, and oh. <laughs> I'm just flat. I mean, it's like humans are not meant to suffer like this kind of a feeling, you know. And I'm I'm wandering the subcontinent, trying to do journalism, and just wanting her. And I, I go up to the mountains eventually, and 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 I encounter this monk through English tutoring who turns out to be heartbroken too. And he's looking for his family. And um, he left them to ordain when he was 11 and then loses touch with them. And they were in Tibet, in which, Tibet. as we know, is not a... It can be a tough place for followers of the Dalai Lama or uh, the devout Tibetan Buddhists because it's controlled by the Chinese now. And he had escaped, as many Tibetans uh, have, to Dharamsala, India, nearby. That's right. So he, he can't get in touch with his family. He's worried that something might have happened to them in the occupation, et cetera, because they're followers of the Dalai Lama. As our friendship moves on, I realize that he's heartbroken. I'm heartbroken. He's doing it differently. And um, the sort of pivotal moment came when we were climbing up in the mountains as we did. Every day we'd hike, and he picks up some snow, and he goes, ah, this India snow... Tibet snow, many same same, many thinking my family, uh, very sad, and he's crying a little bit. And I put my arm around him and I say, Sonam, I, I'm really sorry that you can't find your family. I want to help you. And he, he he laughs and and really a striking laugh, like oh, taken aback a little bit by my gesture. And he goes, Jama, you funny. This very sad, no problem. And it was so, I'd never heard that before. It was so 
such an easy thing to say. And it became like a mantra to me because I was very much, I think, using all of my mindfulness and yoga to be like, I don't want to be sad anymore. I just get me out of this pain mm-hmm. as fast as possible because I can't take it anymore. And I was like, ah, very sad, no problem. <laughs> you know, what does that really mean? And and then... What well, does it really mean? You know, I had to explore it. It became kind of a koan for me. And I, I, could, I could get a down... A koan, by the way, is a Zen riddle that one explores until one's mind explodes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that as a definition. Um, I, I, I knew intellectually that he meant, hey, this Zen idea that like embrace, you know, the now, whatever the now is. But then I, I was like, but he's really embodying it. Like he laughed. He, he's, he's able. He really did embody happiness. And yet he was clearly sad. And I was like, he's, he's holding both of these at once. And I'm not there. Me, to me, they're like, I'm either into this, the despair because the future looks trying or I'm happy because it looks bright. And he's doing it both. So how's he doing it? And it, it was, then I go on meditation retreat and do a 10-day Vipassana. And long story short, I ended up sobbing through a lot of that retreat. And it was thanks to him. And I think I, it was the first time I realized that meditation can kind of put you in touch with your emotions. And then feeling those emotions doesn't have to be bad. Like actually feeling sadness when you're sad can be incredibly pleasant almost to really be sad and really feel it. And um, and I realized I didn't have enough space in my life to actually feel the trauma of the heartbreak. But then I realized I basically had like you know, sediment layers of things that I'd never grieved, my parents' divorce and stuff. And I go into that in the book, but, uh, you know, I won't, I'll let the readers um, go into that part. You know, I don't want to talk about the whole thing. <laughs> That's a good tease, as we say in the business, uh, in my business. Um, uh, such a pleasure to sit with you. You put me in a better mood. <laughs> really a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, your your work continues to inspire me. So thank you. Thank you. And very quickly, people want to learn more about you. How can they do that? Jamal Yogis. Um, I'm on all the social sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and jamalyogis.com. But the spelling is J-A-I-M-A-L, right? It looks like jamalyogis.com. Okay. Yeah. But another easy way to find me is uh, All Our Waves Are Water as the name of the new book. And if you Google that, you'll find me. Awesome. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Good Thank- job. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who help make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.